Welcome to the Second World Sepsis Congress. Over the next 90 minutes, we will learn about evidence-based treatment of sepsis. This session is chaired by Mark Ziegenfuss from Australia. As always, please use the chapter markers if you want to listen to one specific speaker and head over to YouTube should you wish to see the slides of the speakers. Mark, take it away. Hello, everybody. This is Mark Ziegenfuss talking to you from Brisbane, Australia. Welcome to the Second World Sepsis Conference, session number eight on evidence-based treatment of sepsis. Um, to start this off, I just want to thank the conveners, uh, Simon, Flavia, and Conrad for, again, putting together an excellent, uh, an excellent program. And um, specifically for the session, I would like to thank our exclusive sponsor, Abionics, for making this entire thing possible. Um, in the session, we're going to be looking at evidence-based uh, treatment of sepsis, particularly looking at vasopressor um, treatments, ventilation, renal failure, and surviving sepsis guidelines. And I'd like to introduce our first speaker for the session, who is Daniel de Backer from Brussels in, in uh, Belgium. Daniel doesn't really need that many introductions to us intensivists. Uh, he's a professor of intensive care, and his main research interests are in the area of organ dysfunction and support, sepsis, circulatory failure, and hemodynamic support, hepatosplanchnic circulation, and microcirculatory disorders. Daniel de Backer is the uh, current president of the European Society of Intensive Care Medicine. And uh, welcome, Daniel. Enlighten us. Thank you very much. So welcome. I'm the past president anyway, but it uh, doesn't change a lot. So good morning, everybody. Uh, it's my pleasure to discuss with you the um, selection of the right vasopressor uh, agent in septic shock. Uh, one of the very important aspects to recognize is the fact that uh, whatever the receptor that is stimulated, meaning vasopressin, alpha adrenergic, or angiotensin, the downstream mechanisms are relatively similar with simulation of G protein, which um, uh, by different mechanisms will lead to the increase in intracalcium stores uh, in the um, vascular smooth muscle cell, leading to vasoconstriction. So as a downstream mechanism uh, are quite similar, what, why do we see differences between vasopressors? Well, these arise due to receptor sensitivity, uh, which may vary uh, according to the vasopressor. Disposition of these receptors in the vascular system, this may different, be different in, in the systemic circulation and in regional circulation, especially renal circulation and splanchnic circulation, and also of the other receptors, meaning the beta-adrenergic receptors, the V2 for the um, vasopressin 2 receptor, and so on. So if we begin with the adrenergic agents, we have four main agents, meaning mostly dopamine, norepinephrine, epinephrine, and phenylephrine. And the difference between these agents is mostly that dopamine, dopamine is somewhat weaker than the other one, but the other one are quite of a similar potency, meaning that for the alpha adrenergic agents, these will lead to the same pressure effect. However, if we look at the beta adrenergic effect, uh, dopamine has a weak one, norepinephrine also has a weak one, and epinephrine has a very strong beta adrenergic potency. And for the dopamine uh, receptor, it's only dopamine who is active on this. Uh, 
So we will say, just for increasing blood pressure and blood flow, it will be better to give epinephrine. The real problem is that, unfortunately, we target doses based on blood pressure, meaning on the alpha-adrenergic agent. Uh, and we also have, as a side effect, the stimulation of the beta. With low dose, perhaps beta could be okay, but at high dose, we need to, to be very cautious because if we look at the impact on flow on our cardiac output, we can see that at limited dose, we have a marked effect, but when we increase the dose, the effect seems to plateau. On the other hand, all the metabolic effects are relatively minimal at low doses, but become very strong at high dose. And of course, we will not really control these dose effects when we will give epinephrine in our patients. So in a very interesting trial from my working colleagues comparing epinephrine and norepinephrine, we can see from this slide that indeed uh, all the blood pressure was exactly identical in the patient randomized to epinephrine or to norepinephrine. And this was achieved by the same dose um, with, um, with these two agents. Uh, so exactly the same uh, blood pressure effect. However, if we look at other effects, we can realize that epinephrine was associated with tachycardia uh, and with increase in lactate levels. And these were related to um, uh, these um, simulation, excessive simulation of the beta effect. And in addition, there were much more patients that were stopped the agent with epinephrine due to arrhythmias than with norepinephrine. Could this lead to survival differences? We do not know exactly because all studies that were done in this domain were unfortunately unpowered. But this is a signal that we need to take into account. When we look at dopamine and norepinephrine, we have one large trial that we realized uh, a few years ago. Um, in that trial that included uh, more than um, uh, 1,600 patients, uh, we can see that the effect on blood pressure was relatively similar with the two agents. Um, and so, indeed, the target blood pressure was reached identically in the two groups. When we look at survival, there was no major difference, um, no significant difference, but the p-value was very close to significance at p007. And in any way, there was no signal that dopamine can be better than norepinephrine. When we looked at subgroups, we realized that cardiologic shock was um, in cardiologic shock, dopamine was associated with an increase in mortality, which was not the case um, in um, the other group. However, there was a small trend in septic shock. Interestingly, we can realize that um, dopamine was associated with a higher earth rate compared to norepinephrine, and in addition, there was a significant increase in the arrhythmias um, in dopamine group compared to norepinephrine. Interestingly, there were several trials in septic shock randomizing patients to dopamine and norepinephrine. While ours was the largest one, the other one, and especially the Patel one, was relatively uh, large also. And all led to exactly the same conclusion that indeed there is an increase in mortality with norepinephrine, with uh, dopamine compared to norepinephrine. This means that indeed norepinephrine seems to be the preferred agent uh, in septic shock when we discuss the adrenergic agents, of course. When there is some observational trials, this is quite interesting to look at. And in, in US, there was some shortage of norepinephrine um, a few years ago. And what they realized is that uh, when norepinephrine 
uh, was in shortage for a couple of months uh, in these hospitals, there was, of course, more use of dopamine and phenylephrine and somewhat vasopressin in these hospitals. And interestingly, there was an increase in mortality uh, that was observed during that period um, uh, with um, an adjusted odd ratio of one on one five, uh, which is indeed uh, significant, and see, and this means that probably among the vasopressors, uh, norepinephrine is really the preferred agent to have in septic shock. But what about the other agents, the non-adrenergic agents, and especially vasopressin and angiotensin? For vasopressin, the uh, largest trial was the VAST trial. The VAST trial was mostly conducted in Canada and U.S., but with some other centers around the world, and included 800 patients. And in that trial, uh, the um, norepinephrine and vasopressin globally were uh, leading to similar results, and especially for the primary endpoint, which was uh, mortality at 28 days, the p-value was uh, absolutely not significant. However, um, it was interesting to look at subgroups, and in the subgroup of the most severe patients, there was no effect. However, in the patients who were defined as a less severe, uh, meaning norepinephrine dose less than 1.5 microgram per minute, um, in these patients, there was a significant improvement in outcome with the use of vasopressin. This data, of course, needs confirmation. We do not really have a true confirmatory trial, but we have a very similar trial, which was using, um, again, uh, vasopressin uh, versus norodrenaline um, within six hours of the onset of septic shock. And these patients, by chance, were having exactly the same dose of uh, norodrenaline in the control group uh, than in the uh, low dose in the fast trial. And in that trial, there was no difference in, in the outcome. However, it should be noted that the doses of vasopressin were slightly higher in that trial. So maybe the dose issue uh, um, is, um, is a concern. And so the jury is still out to say that vasopressin is better than norodrenaline. Probably we can consider that both are equivalent in most cases, but in some cases probably we can go for switch from one to the other one. What is the role of angiotoxin 2 in septic shock? This is quite interesting because um, there is a revival of angiotoxin, and especially due to this uh, interesting trial published a few months ago in New England. So what they observed is that um, in these um, uh, 300 patients or so, um, the um, response in terms of blood pressure was more um, significantly observed uh, with angiotensin compared to placebo. Um, there was a signal uh, that um, uh, mortality may be uh, perhaps um, improved with a mortality at, at uh, 28 days of uh, 46% in angiotensin compared to a 54% in the placebo group, but this was not significant. It's important to recognize that even though it was considered by the FDA as a phase three trial, um, we still need um, probably some data to confirm uh, that uh, this agent is safe and that this agent can be uh, used instead of norepinephrine in these patients. So at the end, uh, what I would like to conclude is that um, norepinephrine can still be considered as a first choice agent, that vasopressin is really uh, a very good alternative, and that uh, we need perhaps more data to say that it should be used instead of, but um, uh, in many patients, uh, it can be considered as a very good alternative. 
the time uh, at which we need to institute it is um, still a matter of debate. Angiotensin appears to be promising, uh, but uh, more data are needed uh, in my mind. Um, and uh, the most important aspect, perhaps, is that if one drug seems to be of limited efficacy, adding a second agent uh, of another class is much better than adding another agent of the same class. So uh, this means that uh, adding epinephrine to norepinephrine is probably not very useful. It's better to add vasopressin to norepinephrine when we face a failure of the first agent. And with this, I'm happy to uh, discuss any question you may have on this uh, lecture. Okay, thank you very much. Um, I have a couple of questions here. Um, the first question um, is actually from myself, is that if you have, if you're using one pressor and you said uh, uh, in the first instance that in sepsis that should be norepinephrine, if you find that patients are becoming either resistant to that or it's not working well, do you have any ways of uh, priming adrenoreceptors or do you have any special tricks or, or do you immediately go to a second agent besides obviously making sure the temperature control, the pH, and the biochemical milieu is, 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 is okay. So, do you have any uh, do you have any tricks with that? No, I don't have really tricks for that. Uh, I'm beyond, of course, the fight uh, on using uh, steroids, but I think this will be um, uh, the topic of another talk uh, today. Um, but indeed. Uh, uh, um, Often, when you have a failure of uh, one uh, receptor, switching to another uh, is often associated with uh, a relatively good um, response. And um, um, switching from norepinephrine or adding vasopressin to norepinephrine is a very good example for this, especially when you have low pH and so on. Um, for angiotensin, it's not very clear. Um, while the first data from um, uh, Lacan are indeed in previous clinical care before the phase three trial, uh, indeed these data suggested that um, um, angiotensin may be um, useful when the two other agents are failing. So um, um, I think we have three different lines there that can be considered and maybe perhaps some others in future also, of course. Um, question I have, uh, do you, uh, uh, question is, do you, with your vasopressage, do you start high and titrate back or do you start low and titrate up? <laughs> what sort of doses do you use? So, um, first, uh, personally, um, I think most of we discuss an orpinephrine in a um, microgram per kilogram per minute. Um, and, and it really depends on the, um, on the blood pressure level. Uh, so, usually, we do not do boluses um, because the uh, onset of the um, infusion is relatively rapid. Of course, if you are in cardiac arrest, things are totally different. Uh, but so um, we usually begin with 0.1 or 0.2 microgram per kilogram per minute. And uh, every two or three minutes, uh, you can rapidly increase uh, the dose for norepinephrine. Um, this is um, easy for norepinephrine. For vasopressin, it's a little bit more complicated, uh, meaning that indeed, uh, the usual doses uh, that have been recommended is um, 0 0.02, 0 0.03 units per minute. Um, it, you can go up to 0 0.06 as in the uh, VANISH trial, but um, uh, above these doses is probably um, detrimental effects uh, can be observed, especially uh, with uh, spanking vasoconstriction. So uh, with vasopressin, 
usually we also begin with a continuous infusion and we increase, um, or we begin with 0.01 and we increase uh, every uh, half an hour um, up to 0.03 and then we will keep it stable for, uh, for a while. I don't like to go over 0.03, but just we don't have strong data about what is the, the optimal dose or maximal dose for a visopressin. Um, anything different in the pediatric population that you know about? Well, I'm not a pediatrician. Um, um, it seems that uh, adrenaline um, is more often used in the pediatrician world than it is in um, adults, uh, perhaps because of uh, some uh, aspect of the uh, severe myocardial depression that is observed in some of these patients. Um, but I'm really not mastering uh, pediatrician doses, so I will not um, um, go too far on this uh, domain. Okay. And then uh, another question I got here from the audience is, um, what? Uh, oh, it's flicking on as I'm going along. Uh, what do you consider to be a maximal dose for uh, norepinephrine? Um, and what is the maximal <laughs> dose that you would advocate for, uh, through use in a peripheral line? Because often it's instituted in emergency departments peripherally. Um, oh. These are two questions. So uh, the uh, peripheral line is bad for all these agents because if there is extravasation, um, it could lead to a necrosis of the skin. So um, as long as you use relatively low doses and it's diluted in a, uh, other things, it can be standing there for, for a while. But otherwise, it's probably safer to use um, a central line that we often need to use for many other things in these very severe patients. So, um, um, uh, in the emergency department or in the ward, uh, whatever, uh, I don't have issues with using uh, norepinephrine or vasopressin uh, as long as I'm sure of the, uh, uh, of the uh, potency of the line. Uh, but rapidly, I would probably use a central line for most of these patients when these do not rapidly uh, uh, wean from the agent. For the maximal dose, it's 0 0.08 or to 1 microgram per kilogram per minute that I consider to add another agent, uh, but there is no real maximal dose. The only uh, maximal dose is fertility. Uh, but, um, so if it is just for 10 minutes, it could be okay. For more longer, yeah. it's more complicated. All right, thank you very much for your insights. Um, I'd like to move on to the next speaker. Um, thank you, bye-bye. Um, thank you very much, bye-bye. All right, our next speaker is Massimo Antonelli, buongiorno. Uh, he's going to be talking to us about non-invasive mechanical ventilation, when and how. Massimo is, um, again, well-known to the intensive care community. He is a, a professor of intensive care anesthesiology at the Polyclinical Gemelli University Hospital. Uh, he is a past president of the European Society and former editor-in-chief of intensive care medicine. Um, his particular interests, again, are sepsis infection, mechanical ventilation, and ARDS. I'd like to welcome Massimo. Thank you very much. Good morning, and thank you for the introduction. Uh, we often uh, admit patients with sepsis and uh, sepsis-related problems who has also ARDS or acute respiratory failure. The real matter is, can we treat these patients on a hospital admission or ITU admission? With non-invasive ventilation, I will try to outline my presentation, just uh, uh, trying to address the question. Um, if these are my conflict of interest, 
And my real first slide refers to the uh, consensus conference that uh, the ERS NPS have published uh, recently. And there, there is uh, the first uh, clear-cut message that uh, we cannot give any real uh, uh, recommendation. They identify the uh, category of patients that may have a benefit by the use of non-invasive ventilation and are those that we know quite well being uh, into the range of definition of uh, ARF, uh, which is PAO2, FEO2 below 200, achipnea, and non-COPD uh, diagnosis. But as soon as you look at the recommendation, uh, can be a bit uh, uh, disillusioned. Uh, given the uncertainty of evidence, we are unable to offer a recommendation on the use of NIV for the novel acute respiratory failure. But if you look at the justification, you have a number of uh, interesting clue and suggestions. There is a, certainly a low certainty of evidence. There is not enough evidence to recommend the use, but a trial of non-invasive ventilation may be offered to this patient when, when you are in the experienced hands of a well-trained team and you have to have a careful selection of patients into the ICU. And the other thing is uh, to reassess these patients early and frequently, intubating them promptly if there is no improvement. But which are the real problems behind the use of a technique that exploits the spontaneous breathing? We know that the high inflation pressure may cause borotrauma and the overdistation develop trauma. And the repetitive opening and closing of the alveoli translates into the atelic trauma. These activate the biotrauma, and we have a picture which is really very detrimental also for the final outcome. And if you look at the what happens uh, under spontaneous breathing and non-invasive ventilation, we know that we have uh, various ventilator modes, but on all spontaneous modes, often the patients uh, persist in having deep inspiratory swing. They produce high tidal volume and consequently high transpulmonary pressure that are one of the other major determinants for the uh, lung damage. Indeed, the investigations uh, recently published by the group of Marcelo Amato pointed out that what counts the most is indeed a driving pressure, which is the difference between the plateau pressure and the peak, uh, and is strictly related to the tidal volume and the compliance. What happens uh, when we apply the, uh, the, uh, the uh, non-invasive ventilation to these patients spontaneously breathing, uh, especially if they are initially on uh, uh, invasive mode, and then uh, we move to the non-invasive one. Uh, you, you can have a pleural pressure under control of mechanical ventilation, uh, and having the pleural pressure uh, whose surrogate is the esophageal pressure, five um, centimeters of water, we, it translates in 25. Then, uh, when uh, we start to have a spontaneous breathing and the deep inspiratory swing may cause minus 20 and a total transmural pressure uh, that is 40, which is detrimental. But the point is, what happens if there is a reduction of the uh, respiratory muscle wall low and then you have a, a lower 
level of uh, inflatory swing. Finally, we, there is a big question mark, also because just uh, monitoring uh, non-intubated patients for having reliable uh, mechanical data is difficult. However, we know that uh, despite the fact that uh, in, under similar condition of low and volume, the uh, trans uh, pulmonary replacement changes may be similar uh, between the pressure support and control mechanical ventilation, that there are remarkably negative swings at the level pressure that may be, be indeed a, a dangerous conditions inducing the, the damage. However, if you look at uh, what happens uh, in the only uh, physiological study that look at the uh, level of tidal volume and pressure, you may uh, immediately uh, realize that as soon as there is a combination of pressure support and feet, the esophageal pressure, which is an expression of the uh, inspiratory swing, uh, diminishes the most, and probably so you may attenuate the potential damage. But the other interesting matter is that if you look at the uh, what happens in the uh, athletes or people who are trained under exercise, you may see that they are a, a capable to produce uh, a very huge tidal volume with minus volumes that exceed 100 liters per minute, something really very, very uh, high. And under this condition, uh, these did not, do not develop any damage. So probably we do not know exactly what uh, at the physiological level happens. Coming to the recent uh, uh, new definitions, the very definition of RDS, the interesting matter is that uh, uh, the, this publication just delineated the perimeter of non-invasive ventilation to deny the RDS, the RDS uh, whose uh, uh, PAO2, CO2 is uh, something in between 300 and 200. What's the matter? The matter is also that as soon as you have uh, a failure of non-invasive ventilation, and this is the other detrimental aspect, uh, the uh, increased uh, risk of death is very clear. But at the same time, we know that when it's successful, this is our old publication uh, uh, more than 20 years ago, you may get uh, a reduction of the name, the infect uh, infectious complication like sepsis and septic shock. And when you use this uh, approach as first-line intervention, you may see that those patients who are successfully treated uh, indeed do have a very low uh, death rate that is below uh, 5%. And more recently, the study conducted uh, uh, by uh, the European Society of Intensive Care Medicine, the LungSafe, uh, showed that those patients in RDS and treated invasively had indeed a mortality rate of 25.7%. Uh, but the global mortality of non-invasive ventilation patients uh, was indeed uh, quite similar, 26%, despite the fact that there was uh, an higher mortality rate for all those patients who failed non-invasive ventilation. So uh, we, the real problem is how to optimize and how can we uh, have a, an early detection of the treatment failure uh, and uh, uh, in order to avoid any delay of intubation. And in this sense, there are publications, like the one coming from uh, Chateau, where all those patients who, are, who express a higher uh, tidal volume have indeed a higher risk of failure. And uh, looking again to uh, our big survey concerning all patients uh, 
uh, on LDS. There, those patients where the higher severity score and whose PaO2, PO2 doesn't improve after one hour of application of the technique are indeed more prone to fail. And we know quite well that uh, if we uh, refer to the most severe categories of patients, uh, the failure rate may be uh, very high, uh, just reaching 60%. Interestingly, uh, a Chinese group recently proposed uh, a score to assess the, the severity and the probability of failure of non-invasive ventilation based upon heart rate, acidosis, consciousness, oxygenation, uh, and respiratory rate. And this was quite uh, a, a, an effective uh, uh, score to predict. The point is often also we, uh, the, the different kinds of interfaces we can use. We are speaking about the helmet, which is an interface, is a hook that uh, can allow the application under non-invasive ventilation of higher level of PEEP. And this may be very useful. Recently, the group of John Kress in uh, Chicago demonstrated that the number of patients in a randomized trial created non-invasively with the helmet and indeed uh, a better outcome, reducing uh, uh, the complications uh, and even uh, the mortality rate. But interestingly, in that protocol, what has been shown that in all cases, all those treated through this interface could have applied an higher level of peak. Why is this important? Because as soon as you look at the recruitability of the lung, we immediately can realize that the recruitability in LDS patients may be quite different, and the need of applying higher level of PEEP may make a major difference. In this sense, having a device, having an interface that can allow this possibility can be the real solution, but we need, of course, a dedicated randomized lab trial to answer this question. Finally, this is my last slide. I go back to the uh, recommendation and the consider considerations made by the consensus conference. And uh, I want just to say that, uh, provided the fact that you can treat early these patients uh, in, into, into a protected environment as the ICU within the uh, team with an experienced, uh, um, uh, experienced uh, uh, frequentation of the uh, of this kind of technique and selecting the right patient, uh, you may apply this safely, always having in mind that you have to assess and the patient doesn't improve promptly intubated then because the intubation is safe, will save million of lives. So don't hesitate to do that. Thank you. Grazie mille, Massimo. Um, <clears throat> I have a, a couple of questions from the audience. Um, yes. First of all, is uh, what type of non-invasive ventilation is most helpful in hypoxia and sepsis? Looking at high flow, looking at CPAP versus BiPAP. You know, uh, the non-invasive ventilation, you can include also the CPAP category, which is in a way or another spontaneous form. It's not a real ventilation that can be delivered non-invasively. Um, I don't think that there is a major difference in terms of CPAP or pressure support uh, under these circumstances. It is unclear up to now, despite some uh, negative study, if the 
high flow oxygen therapy may be superior or equal to the non-invasive sedation, especially because uh, many of those uh, trials that show the superiority of high flow oxygen therapy were indeed conducted in not always in the best uh, uh, conditions concerning the delivery of uh, uh, NIV. So I think that uh, uh, some of the, the data should be uh, repeated. For the moment, at the very beginning, uh, you may use uh, indifferently all the three techniques. Uh, if the patient has uh, an important uh, uh, muscle warload, maybe the non-invasive ventilation with pressure support may be better. Okay. Um, and do you have a different approach for non-invasive ventilation in pulmonary versus non-pulmonary ARDS? Uh, yes, of course, uh, for a very simple reason uh, that uh, on top of that, uh, you must put under control the source of sepsis. And uh, if you have an extra pulmonary RDS related, for example, to a, a pure event cholecystitis, uh, unless you resolve the problem of operating the patient, uh, maybe it's not uh, recommendable to use the non-invasive ventilation because it doesn't, it is just a, a palliative, uh, it's just a, a support care, but the solution is not there. It's different when you have a patient with pneumonia, where what you have to do is just to complement uh, the antibiotic therapy together with the support. But we need to know that these are always uh, uh, quite uh, uh, delicate and fragile patients. Um, look, I'm, I'm very aware that we have a, a lot of um, guests on board from um, countries that are not quite as resource-rich as, as, for example, uh, Central Europe or Australia, something like that. And my question here is really, um, can you comment on the use of a face mask or CPAP ventilation versus nasal cannula? Um, ventilation. Would you use them interchangeably, or do you? Are you? Uh, I know you advocate for the helmet and that, but uh, would you I, use anything there? Uh, uh, in the very early phases, I would uh, use them uh, um, indifferently, depending upon the resources that are available. Uh, however, uh, again, uh, if you want to uh, download the, uh, uh, reduce the workload or the muscle. Using an interface that allows the pressure support may be, uh, may make some differences. Uh, the helmet can be helpful, especially because uh, uh, the patient uh, is better tolerated than uh, the facial mask for a longer use. But as you may know, uh, it is still not so common in countries out of Europe or out of Italy or UK. Okay. All right, Massimo, thank you very much for your insights. Thank you very much for the invitation. Thank you. All right, then come next up in our session is um, to talk about the prevention and therapy of renal failure um, is Marlise Osterman. Marlise is a consultant in critical care and nephrology at Guy's and St. Thomas's Hospital in London and an honorary senior lecturer at King's College in London. Uh, she studied medicine in Göttingen in Germany and then went across to Ontario, Canada, and is now obviously a stage in the United Kingdom. Her research focuses on acute kidney injury, biomarkers, and renal replacement in critically ill patients. Welcome, Marlies. Good morning. Oh, it's good morning for me here in the UK. Good evening, yeah. <laughs> good evening. 
it's a great honor to participate in this Congress. And uh, I'm very honored to talk about acute kidney injury in this sepsis session. Acute kidney injury is obviously very common during critical illness in general. The Aki-Epi study showed that more than 50% of patients developed acute kidney injury during their stay in the intensive care unit. And sepsis was considered to be the most common reason. There were also other contributing factors, but sepsis was clearly at the top of the causes of acute kidney injury. It is not surprising that the kidneys are very vulnerable in sepsis. As we've already discussed at length, sepsis is an endothelial disease affecting the microcirculation. And clearly the kidneys are very vascular. They consist predominantly of blood vessels, tubules, and some interstitial cells. They're also at the receiving end of 20% of our cardiac output. As a result of this, they're very vulnerable during periods of sepsis, hemodynamic instability, and endothelial dysfunction. Occasionally, there are also other factors contributing to the onset of acute kidney injury. There may be some hemodynamic instability. There may be some additional nephrotoxic drugs. Or there may also be the uh, injury from the exposure of tubular cells to cytokines, dams, and um, damaging particles. And what I really want to highlight with this slide is that uh, even when we think sepsis is causing acute kidney injury, there are multiple different pathways through which acute kidney injury can occur. And that's one reason why it is so difficult to prevent acute kidney injury, just because there are so many different processes which may have to be stopped or be prevented. But undoubtedly, hemodynamic instability, or more importantly, perfusion pressure, is a key factor. We've had several studies emphasizing the importance of renal perfusion and the importance of hypotension as a factor of acute kidney injury. Here is one study by Walsh and colleagues who looked at the relationship between hypotension during surgery and risk of acute kidney injury afterwards. They analyzed data of more than 33,000 patients and excluded data of patients with pre-existing chronic kidney disease. And they found a very clear correlation between the lowest blood pressure during surgery and the subsequent risk of acute kidney injury. And when they controlled for other usual risk factors, hypotension remained an independent risk factor. And even more importantly, the duration mattered. Even short periods of hypotension of less than five minutes were independently associated with the onset of acute kidney injury. 
again, highlighting how vulnerable the kidneys are during periods of instability, during periods of acute sickness, critical illness. Most patients are vulnerable, but patients with pre-existing chronic hypertension are particularly vulnerable. And this was highlighted by Asfa and colleagues in a large randomized controlled trial conducted in France. In this study, patients with septic shock were randomized to two different blood pressure targets. And as shown here, the primary outcome, 90-day mortality, and 28-day mortality was no different between the two groups. However, patients with pre-existing chronic hypertension had a much higher risk of needing renal replacement therapy if they were randomized to the low blood pressure group or the other way around. In this group, patients needed less renal replacement therapy if they were randomized to the higher blood pressure group. Again, highlighting the importance of, blood, of renal perfusion. So blood pressure is important. We often treat blood pressure with vasopressors, but we also use fluid. And undoubtedly, fluid therapy, fluid management is a key component of sepsis management. And we all know that hypovolemia or intravascular volume depletion is uh, nephrotoxic and can cause acute kidney injury. But over the last few years, we've learned that fluid accumulation is equally harmful to kidney function. And in fact, acute kidney injury can develop as a result of excessive fluid administration and fluid accumulation. So in response to this, colleagues from Scandinavia conducted designed the CLASSIC trial, which was a feasibility trial to explore whether it was safe and potentially beneficial to avoid fluid accumulation in patients with septic shock who were considered to be adequately fluid resuscitated. So patients with septic shock were randomized to a strategy consisting of fluid restriction where they would only receive fluid if their blood pressure was 50 or less, or they had signs, obvious signs of hypoperfusion. And patients randomized to the standard care group would receive uh, normal maintenance fluid. Interestingly, when they looked at the development of acute kidney injury, they noticed a higher incidence of acute kidney injury in patients randomized to standard care where patients with septic shock had received maintenance intravenous fluid. And patients randomized to the restricted group had significantly less acute kidney injury. Of note, obviously, these were patients who were at the onset considered to be uvolemic, and that's very important. It's a small trial, but it shows, again, that too much fluid can potentially be harmful. When we talk about prevention, then that would be an important component. The uh, issue of fluid resuscitation was also addressed uh, in one of the sub-analyses of the process trial. The process trial was obviously um, 
a large randomized controlled trial comparing early goal-directed therapy with standard care. And in this sub-analysis, the investigators focused on the onset of acute kidney injury and particularly analyzed the data of patients who did not have acute kidney injury at time of enrollment. When they looked at this group of patients, then as shown on this slide here, patients randomized to the early goal-directed therapy group or the protocolized care group had significantly higher fluid volumes received compared to patients randomized to usual care. Interestingly, that also had a higher requirement for dobutamine, obviously, as per protocol, study protocol. And despite the increased amount of fluid and the higher need for catecholamines, there was no difference in any parameter related to acute kidney injury. There's no difference in the onset of acute kidney injury duration or recovery. And again, it shows that excess fluid is not beneficial for kidneys, provided patients are adequately resuscitated in the beginning. So in summary, prevention of acute kidney injury and sepsis consists of focused early treatment of sepsis with timely source control, prevention of hypotension, and also prevention of fluid overload. The other way around, the risk of acute kidney injury increases if sepsis isn't managed appropriately and hypotension is tolerated. Sadly, we don't have any drugs to prevent acute kidney injury, and we also don't have any drugs specifically designed to manage acute kidney injury. The management of acute kidney injury and sepsis is completely supportive, consisting of focused, timely management of sepsis with correction of any risk factors, including hypotension and volume depletion, but also prevention of fluid overload. For a long time, people have tried to find specific drugs. Researchers have spent a lot of time trying to find drugs to prevent and manage acute kidney injury. Yang and colleagues looked at existing studies to identify potential therapies for acute kidney injury. And there were some medications which showed some positive beneficial effect in animal models, but sadly have no role in clinical practice. So the management of acute kidney injury in clinical practice remains supportive. And finally, some patients obviously progress to severe acute kidney injury and may need renal replacement therapy. And again, there was hope that the prognosis could potentially be altered by changing the way renal replacement therapy was delivered. I'm afraid earlier initiation or higher doses of renal replacement therapy have not been successful and have not shown to be beneficial in, uh, in facilitating renal recovery. So the advice is to start renal replacement therapy when it is clinically indicated, 
and not to alter the usual renal replacement therapy prescription. There is no clear evidence that any specific renal replacement therapy prescription is beneficial in facilitating renal recovery. So in conclusion, renal, re renal failure or acute kidney injury is very common during sepsis. Prevention consists of timely early management of sepsis with attention to blood pressure and fluid management. The same applies to the management of acute kidney injury. Specific therapies are not available yet, and renal replacement therapy should be offered, but there is no specific prescription to facilitate renal recovery. There's a lot of hope that one day specific drugs will be invented. But until then, we need to honor every single nephron to prevent progression of acute kidney injury and long-term complications. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Marlies. Um, <clears throat> a couple of questions from the audience. Um, um, what is your diuretic of choice when um, you're trying to clear tubular crystals or surgical flush the kidneys, um, assuming that patient has an appropriate map, obviously you said in hypertensives you've got to aim a little bit, or chronically hypertensive patients you've got to aim a little bit higher, but by and large as the evidence, uh, a map greater than 65 or 65 and above should be gone for. What is your preferred um, diuretic? So if, if I give diuretics, so I give diuretics in two patients who are considered to be fluid overloaded, so if a patient is fluid overloaded, then my diuretic, first-line diuretic is furosemide because I can handle it, I know how to dose it, uh, and in 90% of patients it works. And I'm not aware of any data showing a um, preference for one diuretic over another. And any specific dose that you challenge these patients with? Well, I start with I usually start with 20. It may not work simply because in severe acute kidney injury, the dose may, the drug may not get to its uh, site of action, which is obviously from within the tubule. So I start with 20. If it doesn't work, I go to 40 and I increase the dose. And um, if it doesn't work, I feel comfortable going up to 100 milligrams in that as a dose if necessary, um, but I would not go escalate to uh, unacceptable doses and allow the patient to become fluid overloaded. So I may then convert to renal replacement therapy if I thought the patient needed fluid removal. Okay, so there's a question from the audience with respect to um, dialysis. Um, I suspect in a first world setting, people would prefer hemodialysis to peritoneal dialysis, but is there anybody who has looked at peritoneal dialysis considering uh, resource-limited environments versus uh, hemodialysis? Yes, yes. Uh, colleagues in uh, Brazil have had a lot of experience, positive experience with acute peritoneal dialysis, even in the intensive care setting. Uh, I, th I think it, just talking to them, it is possible. Uh, 
obviously you need a fresh capita and as a result you can only use low volumes. But in experienced hands, it appears to be effective and safe. Um, any role for, sorry, any, any role for um, dialysis and the so-called removal of middle molecules? Um, so there is no role for removal of middle molecules to speed up renal recovery. There is no role for removal of middle molecules to um, treat sepsis. The removal, the, the best evidence for in favor of removal of middle molecules is in the chronic setting, where patients in long-term dialysis patients to prevent uh, the long-term complications of amyloidosis, but in the acute setting, there's no evidence that it improves patient outcome. It removes middle molecules, it does, yes, some of the membranes do, some modalities do, but it does not translate into direct patient benefit. Okay. Um, another question from the audience, which I know there's evidence for, is does dopamine specifically have a beneficial effect to acute kidney injury, not prevention of acute kidney injury, but to acute kidney injury in sepsis? In sepsis? Uh, no, it, it doesn't. So uh, I think David uh, Daniel DeBacca had a talk on vasopressors. So um, noradrenaline is the first recommended first-line vasopressor in sepsis and in septic AKI. I think that refers to, to uh, naturesis and that with dopamine. Um, the other one thing I just want to ask, somebody asked about um, early use of spironolactone to, with thruzamide as, as, for for, as a diuretic. Do you have any comment on that? Uh, it's a good point, good question. So uh, in patients who respond well to thruzamide and uh, need potassium replacement, Yes, spironolactone can act as as a potassium sparing agent to avoid the need for the regular potassium replacement. But that's the only indication. All right. Okay, Marlies, um, we have to move on. Thank you very much for your insights. Thank you for the invite. It's a pleasure. All right, we're going to be moving along to our next speaker, who is Kathy Rowan in the UK who will talk about early goal-directed therapy in 2018, what remains. Kathy is, again, well-known in the intensive care community as a director at ICNARC, which is the Intensive Care National Audit and Research Center. She is an honorary professor at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine with the University of London. Um, Kathy has, well, she's been to our shores a lot. She was the chief investigator for the PROMISE study and led the individual patient data meta-analysis pooling data from PROMISE uh, with harmonized multi-center randomized control trials in the USA, uh, which is PROCESS, and also in Australasia, which was the ARISE study. Um, Kathy is a member of the Council of the International Sepsis Forum. Welcome, Kathy. Thank you. So um, I was posed the question, early goal-directed therapy in 2018, what remains? And I think probably to be able to answer this question, uh, it's important to go back and tell the story, uh, certainly as I see it. And the story starts in the late 90s where 
a very highly skilled critical care clinician, uh, Manny Rivers, uh, actually recognized a local problem in his public hospital. And that was one of poor recognition and poor care to patients presenting with emerging sepsis and septic shock. And had the bright idea and sense to bring critical care skills and therapy uh, into the ED setting. Probably more importantly, he had the wisdom to actually evaluate the notion of bringing those skills and therapies into the ED in a single center RCT and set about uh, doing a randomized evaluation of what was then sort of care led by Emmanuel Rivers himself versus uh, usual resuscitation. And I think all of us in the sepsis community uh, were very, very surprised and pleased to see uh, the 16% absolute risk reduction that he saw in hospital mortality and subsequently published in the New England Journal of Medicine with an algorithm to help us all, if you like, emulate uh, that sort of early goal-directed therapy that Rivers had delivered to the intervention patients. And then, probably not surprisingly, although only a single-centre study, as we all know, this was adopted into guidelines and practice, uh, international guidelines, certainly in the UK, national guidelines and, and other nations too, regional and local guidelines. And the evidence suggested that the sort of E element, the early element of early goal-directed therapy, was uh, somewhat easier to deliver or adhere to than the uh, goal-directed element. Certainly, when you look at the large number of observational studies uh, that followed, there were challenges and limitations to adherence to the goal-directed sort of elements of bundles and the like. However, Despite this, there were marked improvements in survival seen in the sort of observational before-after studies. So despite the sort of limitation of the design of before and after, it did suggest that uh, the early element, which was easier to deliver, and the goal-directive element of which there were sort of challenges to the uh, delivery and adherence to, did deliver in observational studies marked improvements in survival. And then we're all familiar with the uh, work that came out of uh, Australia that looked at mortality related to severe sepsis and septic shock almost across the period from the original Rivers study through to uh, the trilogy of trials, which I will come on to, showing that mean annual hospital mortality for patients with severe sepsis had dropped uh, sort of in a staggering way from about 35% in 2000 to less than 20% uh, in uh, 2012. And perhaps uh, not quite as uh, sort of uh, impressive, uh, certainly at the same time and over the same period, we looked at our English data and found sort of a similar uh, drop in uh, hospital mortality from 45% in 2000 down to 35%. And so it did suggest that uh, the adoption of the Rivers uh, early goal-directed therapy in some form, despite the challenges of the uh, adherence, 
was delivering improvements in, at that point, hospital survival. But critical care as we are, uh, we're an aspiring evidence-based clinical specialty, and the question that was posed was, obviously, for any single center study, were the results generalizable? And of course, this brought on the trilogy, Protolyzed Care in Emerging Septic Shock, the Australasian Resuscitation in Sepsis Study, and the Protocolized Management in Sepsis Study. And I don't need to spend too long on uh, the pooled trial meta-analysis, but the 90-day mortality for the three trials combined obviously showed uh, no favor for early goal-directed therapy uh, and no difference between early goal-directed therapy and usual resuscitation. And certainly in the UK study, uh, there were indications that uh, delivering early goal-directed therapy uh, had greater costs and that those costs were mainly around early goal-directed therapy sort of inducing a, a slightly longer critical care length of stay uh, and also uh, slightly greater use of uh, vasoactive drugs. Perhaps one of the things that hasn't been reflected on so much uh, when looking at the trilogy of the trials, Process, Arise and Promise, is to actually recognize that all patients in those trials actually got the E element, the early element of early goal-directed therapy, both in terms of early recognition. So although this is just the promise uh, sort of timelines that I'll talk about here, but we harmonize the trials, and we had a time window of six hours from presentation at ED to meeting eligibility criteria for uh, the PROMISE trial. And then up to two hours was allowed to get and gain informed consent and agreement, either directly from the patient or assent from the family or, or a professional. But in reality, and this was the same across all the trials, Actually, the median time from ED presentation to randomization, certainly for PROMISE, was only two and a half hours. So the kind of similar figures that you can glean uh, from the Rivers study was this is sort of compared with a sort of more five to six hours relative to the Rivers study. So we were recruiting into the trials. These patients were getting early recognized in, in the trilogy of trials. Equally, all patients got early volume resuscitation and early antibiotics. Certainly in uh, both, uh, all three trials, to uh, meet the requirement for refractory hypertension, it had to be after a minimum one liter fluid challenge within, the, within 60 minutes, so suggesting uh, fluid volume resuscitation. And for two of the trials, Promise and Arise, actually IV antibiotics had to have been commenced uh, prior to randomization. So patients were early recognized, early volume resuscitated, and got early antibiotics, sort of all part of the E, if you like, of early goal-directed therapy. And so you could argue that the trilogy are actually more about trying to evaluate the goal-directed element of early goal-directed therapy, uh, and perhaps asking the question, were the goals correct, and, and were the interventions needed? So perhaps early goal-directed therapy in 2015, when the trial-level meta-analysis came out, actually suggested that the goal-directed part, given all patients received the early part, 
didn't confer any additional benefit. But quite rightly, uh, the trials were uh, editorialized and challenged, and uh, the Mitch Levy editorial suggested that usual care appeared to now include aggressive early fluid resuscitation. I think that's absolutely true. That had uh, sort of come through into uh, usual resuscitation and, and was certainly built into the design of the three trials. And again, one always expects to uh, be challenged as one publishes uh, trials of this nature. Uh, the editorial by Daniel Debacker and Jean-Louis Vincent obviously challenged that um, although overall early goal-directed therapy uh, had uh, shown no difference, um, perhaps, in fact, it might still be beneficial in the most severely ill patients. And I think as three trial teams collaborating internationally, uh, we'd actually almost to some extent uh, anticipated such questions. And that's why we had kind of come together as an international group to harmonize our trials to deliver uh, an early goal-directed therapy for septic shock patient-level meta-analysis. The idea being that, as we well know, that when you do subgroup analyses in single trials, uh, they're underpowered, but actually to give us sort of greater power across subgroups uh, in, in the three pool trials. So just briefly, you may remember, this was a prospective meta-analysis planned before enrollment of the first patient, harmonized our design across the trials and a data collection. We published a statistical analysis plan, and we have this greater power to explore subgroups. And we tried hard to look at the heterogeneity of treatment effect, particularly this challenge around severity of illness. And we looked at severity of illness in about eight different ways, uh, trying to actually see if we could identify the answer to that question. Perhaps it still would work in the most severely ill. We also felt there may be differences in uh, heterogeneity of what usual resuscitation, and again, particularly looking at the intensity of usual resuscitation. So just to remind you, it's about 3,700 patients in 138 hospitals across seven high-income countries. Demographics you'd expect for the population, 65 years, 58% male, about a third of them having the lungs as their primary site of infection. And their baseline characteristics in terms of physiology, I mean, arterial pressure of 67, lactate of 4.3, patchy 2 score of 16. And again, this Pre-randomization treatment, 93% had antibiotics and about two liters of intravenous fluid before randomization. The overall results were not a surprise. Out to a year, no difference in survival. And the secondary outcomes, we again showed, even when we did the cost analysis across the three trials, this increase in length of stay, this increase in vasoactive drugs, and a sort of one to $2,000 increase in cost to 90 days, and found no differences in others, our other secondary outcomes, receipt of mechanical ventilation, receipt of renal placement therapy, quality of life. But what we tried to do was to answer the question, did uh, was there any benefit in the, in the subgroups of the highest severity of illness? And we looked at this in many ways. Uh, but looking even here at the, just on, based on Apache 2 score or the Apache 2 risk of death, if you look at the sickest group, it's about four and a half times the sample size as rivers. They've got mean Apache 2 scores of 25 
and mortalities in these groups are about 40, 40 to 45, 46%. So suggesting that they mirror a little more the river's population. And as you can see, we were not able to ascertain any improvement or any the fact that early goal-directed therapy provided any benefit to that, that sicker group. We did the same with those who were uh, randomized and met the inclusion criteria of having hypertension and hyperlactatemia. Again, a high-risk group, big numbers, high mortality, and again, we're not able to show benefit from early goal-directed therapy. The same uh, looking at uh, turtiles by lactate, so looking at the highest lactate group with a mean lactate of 6.7 millimoles per litre, a mortality of 34%, almost 1,800 patients, again, not able to show any benefit in that more severe group. Looking again at this sort of variation in underlying usual resuscitation, we saw sort of threefold differences in vasopressor use or uh, 2.5 fold differences in volume resuscitation use. Again, suggesting there were more aggressive sites and less aggressive sites uh, in terms of unusual care intensity. And again, for those who were like uh, the least aggressive, uh, we weren't able to see any benefit from perhaps what might be seen as slightly more aggressive uh, early goal-directed uh, resuscitation. So how to interpret all of this and get to the answer to the question? So first of all, it is important to remember that all patients got the early element of early goal-directed therapy, early recognition, volume resuscitation, antibiotics. And it is possible that the general advances in the provision of care for sepsis explain part or all of the findings uh, when, when comparing with the original study. And I think it's important to remember that early recognition versus late recognition or prompt care versus delayed care were not evaluated by the trilogy of trials. And so I would go back to saying that the early pioneering work that was sort of led by Manny Rivers to promote sepsis awareness, to diagnose early, to treat early, are not undermined in any way by the trilogy of the results. So early goal-directed therapy in 2018, what remains? Uh, I think we all agree on early recognition. I think we all agree that some notion of directed care, I think we just don't know which goals and which therapies to uh, direct. Where's future research? I think uh, ongoing is the knowledge base increasing of our understanding of the pathophysiology of sepsis. I think we'll see come on the scene novel goals and monitoring technologies and novel therapies. And this is probably the, the, the way forward. I think the other thing, just to say note, with uh, the Global Sepsis Alliance, is obviously this research all emerges out of high-income countries and the relevance of this evidence to low- and middle-income countries, uh, again, perhaps with the notion of early perhaps being a very important part of the early goal-directed therapy uh, bundle. So I'm a non-clinician, and uh, if you wanted a sort of clinical appraisal of all this, I probably would be inclined to uh, quote uh, uh, my esteemed colleague, Derek Angus, who I went on this early goal-directed therapy journey with, along with a, a lot of other esteemed colleagues, colleagues. And he says it's time to roll things back and focus on the basics. It's definitely important to have a high index of suspicion to be ready with early antibiotics and fluids and to confirm whether patients are in shock. And if they're in shock, we need to be aggressive. And I think the, the issue comes is what does aggressive mean exactly? 
and that we need research to focus on those unresolved questions about um, the role of uh, most effective fluids, what vasopressors, what hemodynamic monitoring, what the appropriate targets are for our patients. So one doesn't do any of these things alone. So I'd like to finally acknowledge my co-investigators uh, across the three trials, patients and their loved ones, sites, staff and faculty of coordinating centers, independent people who give their time, trial steering committees and data monitoring committees, funding agencies that help us provide an evidence base for critical care, but first, foremost, last and forever, Dr. Rivers for his pioneering work in transforming sepsis care and outcomes. Thank you, Global Sepsis Alliance, for providing me this opportunity to talk. Thank you, Cathy, for that usual tour de force that we are used to from you. I think that that uh, all-encompassing talk is very self-explanatory, and, and I do echo your sentiments that many put sepsis back on the map. Um, and made us take a closer look at it. And the, I think that the real take-home message is the one of awareness and, and early individualized uh, care for septic patients. Okay, thank you, Cathy. So moving on to our next presentation, which is by Jean-Louis Taboul, who is a professor of therapeutics and critical care medicine in uh, Paris. Um, Dr. Uh, Professor Taboul's interests lie mainly in the field of heart-lung interactions, cardiovascular performance, regional blood flow assessments, tissue oxygenation, and hemodynamic monitoring, amongst others. Uh, Professor Taboul is a member of the European Society of Intensive Care Medicine, and he was the chair of the cardiovascular dynamics section of the society from 2014 to 2018. He received an honorary fellow award from the American College of Chest Physicians in 2007. So over to Professor Taboul's presentation. Ladies and gentlemen, I am Jean-Louis Taboul from Paris. I am very honored to participate in this conference. The objective of my presentation is to make a critical analysis of the initial hemodynamic resuscitation of the ISSC guidelines and to highlight the points that could be improved in the future. I have no conflict of interest to declare for this presentation. As you know, the most recent version of the ISSC guidelines was published last year, and regarding hemodynamic resuscitation, this version is fundamentally different from the 2012 version. If you well remember, the 2012 version of the SSC guidelines recommended to guide resuscitation in function of goals which were CVP between 8 and 12 meters of mercury, MAP of at least 65 meters of mercury, urine output, and importantly, SCV to above 70%. These goals came from the early goal directed therapy algorithm proposed in 2001 by Rivers and co workers in their Mono Center randomized control trial in patients with severe sepsis or septic shock, EGDT resulted in reduced mortality compared to standard care, which included the same goals, except as CBU2, which therefore makes the difference. It is interesting to note that except MAP, all the other goals have disappeared in the recent guidelines, in particular CVP and SCVU2. Disappearance of CVP is not very surprising. We know from this meta-analysis by Paul Merrick and co-workers, and which included 1,800 patients, that the summary area 
under the rock curve for the prediction of responsiveness using CVP was only 0.56. Therefore, very close to 0.50. Therefore, predicting for responsiveness with CVP is like tossing a coin, and this meta-analysis is a confirmation of that. Mission of that. The appearance of SCV2 as a goal of resuscitation in the recent guidelines is far more surprising. This probably comes from the publication in 2014 and 15 of three large multicenter randomized controlled trials comparing EGDT and standard care in patients with septic shock. These trials, rise promise and process, showed no improved survival with EGDT, and as SCV2 was the only difference between EGDT and standard care, the SSE experts decided to remove SCV2 from the recommendations. However, we need to be very cautious when interpreting these studies. First, patients were far less sick than in the reverse study. Second, and importantly, SCV2 was already higher than the target at the inclusion time. This is probably related to the fact that patients already received two liters and a half of fluids on average before to be included. Therefore, by design, these studies could not show any benefit of targeting SCV2 above 70%. So why should, you, why should we abandon SCV2? In a patient with septic shock and a central venous cassette already in place, this is a pity not to measure SCV2 from time to time. I'm not the only one to believe that. In this expert panel paper coming from the cardiovascular section of the ESICM, it is clearly mentioned that a low SCV2 may indicate insufficient global oxygen delivery in case of shock and insight one to increase it. Now let's look at the current recommendations of the SSC regarding initial resuscitation. It is recommended to give at least 30 ml per kilogram crystalloids within the first three hours. This is a strong recommendation with a low quality of evidence. But this is also a surprising recommendation, which assumes that one size fits all. Of course, this cannot reflect the real life. Applying this recommendation could result in a high risk of under-resuscitation in some patients, for example, patients with abdominal sepsis and evident feed losses, and on the other hand, high risk of over-resuscitation in other patients, for example, some old patients with pneumonia and cardiovascular comorbidities. So one size does not fit all, and we need to individualize our initial free resuscitation. Another recommendation is to decide to give additional volume after reassessing the hemodynamic status frequently. First glance, this sounds good. But it is unclear when to reassess. If we follow the text of the publication, reassessment should be started after three hours. But this cannot be reasonably applied in the real life. We all know that patients with septic shock at the initial phase are very unstable, and clinicians need to stay at the bedside for reassessing the hemodynamic status as soon as possible. Because I do not want to be too negative. I would like to propose a reasonable approach for fluid resuscitation at the initial phase of septic shock patients. I would recommend to start by an infusion rate of about 10 ml per kilogram crystallis within the first hour. But this infusion rate should be individualized. 
For example, we should increase the infusion rate in cases of free losses, mottling, abdominal sepsis, low pulse pressure, which are factors associated with hypovolemia in this context. On the other hand, we should decrease the infusion rate in case of worsening of tachypnea or fall in oxygen saturation. Therefore, it is important to individualize the therapy even at the initial phase of resuscitation. Within the first one hour, and if shock persists, it is crucial to test well responsiveness. Indeed, we know that not every patient is fully responsive at that stage, and this was illustrated by this systematic review where we included all the studies that addressed the issue of fluid responsiveness at that time. And among 400 patients with shock, 48% of them did not increase their cardiac output in response to fluid infusion. So 48% of them were not fully responsive. In addition, data of the SOAP study conducted in septic patients show that a positive cumulative fluid balance is an independent factor associated with mortality. Therefore, it is crucial to assess fluid responsiveness at that stage with whatever method that chooses dynamic variable, such as first pressure variation, passive leg raise, etc. And it is now recommended by the ESICM, but also by the SSC to use dynamic variables to assess fluid responsiveness. And this is a good point for the current version of the Surviving Cities Campaign Guidelines. So there are two possibilities, fluid responsiveness is present or not. In the case of prior responsiveness, if there is no associated ARDS, we can consider another fluid bolus. But in case of associated ARDS, we need to assess the benefit-risk ratio or further fluid administration. If the benefit is expected to be higher than the risk, we can consider another fluid bolus in case of persistence of shock, of course. If the benefit is expected to be lower than the risk because of a low PF ratio, high lung water, etc., we need to consider other therapies. Of course, in case of fluid unresponsiveness, it is clear that continuing fluid infusion should be discouraged. What about vasopressors now? From the recent SSC guidance paper, it is unclear when norepinephrine should be initiated. It might be understood that the decision should be made only at the time of the first reassessment, that is to say three hours, which is too late if azomotor tone is depressed. And a low diocycatol pressure, especially in the context of tachycardia, can be an easy bedside tool to identify patients who need early initiation of norepinephrine because the low DAP is a good marker of a low arterial tone in this context. This was mentioned in the 2012 SSC publication, but this disappeared inexplicably in the most recent one. Very recently, an editorial was published by the main authors of the SSC, who now propose a new one-hour bundle, replacing the previous three-hour bundle. And as a major point, they now recommend to consider applying vasopressors in the first hour if the patient is hypotensive during or after free resuscitation, 
to maintain MAP above 65 meters of mercury. I appreciate this important modification, which goes in the good direction. However, it is still unclear which trigger should be used to decide to start norepinephrine. Finally, I would like to discuss briefly this recommendation about lactate normalization. It is suggested guiding resuscitation to normalize lactate in patients with elevated lactate levels as a marker of tissue hypoperfusion. But this is a weak recommendation with a low quality of evidence. But we know that other factors than dysoxia can be responsible for increased production of lactate, such as inflammation, cytokines release, hyperadrenergic state, etc. And these factors may persist despite correction of dysoxia with hemodynamic resuscitation. As an illustration, the study conducted by Glenn Hernandez clearly showed that even in survivors of septic shock, normalization of lactate needs far more time than normalization of capillary field time. And since non-hypoperfusion-related causes of hyperlactatemia might predominate, aiming at strictly normalizing lactate might lead to excessive resuscitation with inherent free and vasopressor overload and eventually to increased morbidity and mortality. In summary, there are many good recommendations in the SSC guidelines, and the experts should be congratulated for their considerable work aiming at improving outcome of septic patients. However, I personally regret that SCV2 is missing. In addition, to give 30 ml per kilogram crystalloids within the first three hours to everyone is questionable, and there is a need for individualization of Free resuscitation even at the early phase. And finally, timing of initiation of norepinephrine needs to be better defined. So, in my opinion, the surviving service campaign guidelines still need to be revised to be more in accordance with the real life. Thank you very much for your attention. And we thank Professor Tagul for his presentation. Um, one thing that we are sort of getting from these presentations is that it is really the resource-rich environments that are, are driving sepsis research. Um, and it actually behoves us to continue with this sort of research and ultimately to uh, find a better evidence base how to treat sepsis, but not to forget um, that um, majority of the world's population is actually uh, not resource affluent and that we develop an evidence base and guidelines that actually can help those people in, um, in resource poor environments. And excellent segue actually to our next speaker who's going to be talking about the challenges to adapt the SSC guidelines for resource poor settings. I would like to introduce Madhya Hashmi from Pakistan at the Aga Khan University who will talk to us about using uh, adapting the SSC guidelines to resource poorer environments. Over to you, Madhya. Uh, a very good morning to most and uh, good afternoon to a few in the audience. It's really an honor for me to be part of the Second World Census Conference. Uh, I'm going to talk about the challenges to adapt the surviving sepsis campaign guidelines in Pakistan, which is a middle-income country in South Asia, 
with an estimated population of nearly uh, 200 million people. The Surviving Sepsis Campaign Guidelines were first published in 2004, and the manual to conduct the campaign in hospitals in the United States was published in 2005. But it was not until 2012, with the efforts of Global Sepsis Alliance and the World Sepsis Day, that triggered the awareness spread of awareness in developing countries like Pakistan. So now we have conferences and symposia and educational events every year in September to mark the World Sepsis Day, and we are very proud that the awareness is spreading at least amongst physicians working in teaching hospitals. But we are faced with the challenge that we have to make sure that the awareness spreads to all doctors working even in the smaller basic health units, and we have to start the public awareness. Campaigns as well in Pakistan. Uh, initially, when the surviving sepsis campaign guidelines were uh, published, it included many interventions that were only available to high-income countries or uh, maybe a few hospitals in the low-income countries. And there are many publications that demonstrate that lack of resources in low-middle-income countries hindered the implementation of guidelines in these countries. So, sepsis guidelines for Pakistan were written to provide a framework to clinicians practicing in lower hospitals, so that they can recognize sepsis timely and institute appropriate management for adult patients in sepsis by adopting the evidence-based recommendations of surviving sepsis campaign guidelines, but tailored to the available resources. The sepsis guidelines of Pakistan. The goal uh, was to develop the guidelines in order to reduce the unacceptable and undesirable variation in practice that we see in our hospitals, and to improve sepsis outcomes. The key decision points that we addressed in these guidelines were to grade the hospitals, because in our country the hospitals they range from well-developed, well-equipped teaching hospitals to Very basic hospitals in which even uh, life-saving uh, equipment is not available. So we gave recommendations so that uh, that will enable the doctors working in all setups to recognize sepsis and then to institute essential interventions to manage sepsis according to the level of education and training of healthcare providers. And we also recommended certain general measures which are important to look after any critically ill patient. So these guidelines were developed by a multidisciplinary uh, group, and this group included physicians from uh, most of the specialties that are involved in looking after critically ill patients, like anesthesiologists, pulmonologists, physicians, and infectious diseases consultants from both the private and public hospitals from across the country in Pakistan. And these guidelines had to be disseminated uh, from multi-professional platforms. So uh, we are very proud that the Society of Anesthesiologists, Society of Critical Care Medicine, the Medical Microbiology Society, Chest Society, and the Pediatric Society—they are all uh, uh, doing their role to uh, spread awareness and uh, uh, encourage adopting these uh, guidelines to manage patients. Uh, in severe sepsis and septic shock, and these guidelines were also endorsed um, by the editorial board of Global Sepsis Alliance. 
Now we are faced with a huge task to implement these guidelines across the country. The biggest challenge that we face is the healthcare system of Pakistan, which basically consists of a public sector which is divided into federal and provincial uh, government setups and a private sector which is uh, which includes all uh, private hospitals as well as philanthropic organizations. Now the problem is that the quality of healthcare varies widely in public and private sectors both in terms of training and qualification of human resources and availability of diagnostic and therapeutic equipment government is basically responsible for making policies to encourage the proper uh, management and recognition of sepsis but unfortunately the government of pakistan spends a meager amount of the gross domestic product on health it is 2.2 which is less than the neighboring countries like bangladesh afghanistan and india and it is far less than the developed countries the private health sector which is utilized by 60 or 70% of the health expenditure is out of pocket in pakistan but is the private health system is plagued by lack of accountability in addition to the private and public sectors we have the issue of quacks there are many quacks and for many uneducated people from low social economic strata they end up uh, becoming victims of these quacks so uh, this healthcare system is poses the biggest challenge for us to adopt the sepsis guidelines for pakistan and the surviving sepsis campaign guidelines the who resolution on sepsis is a big step the health ministries in countries like pakistan they usually respond to high profile who campaigns like dengue malaria tb and hiv and the world health assembly uh, has given this uh, resolution to improve prevention diagnosis and clinical management of sepsis and we are very hopeful that the our government will, will respond to the national action plan which will help implement uh, the sepsis awareness as well as the management guidelines we recently have a new government in pakistan and we are also very helpful that they will introduce measures to uh, improve the accountability in the private sector through the health commission implementation of sepsis surviving sepsis campaign guidelines will become very easy when private and public um, health uh, sectors exist in a balance each recognizing their own strengths and responsibilities and both of them working together will help eventually adopt uh, all the measures that has been um, given by the world health organization the next challenge that we face is sustaining the effort it is uh, a huge task to continue the efforts that we have uh, made so far and the achievements that we have so far the most important thing is sepsis education we have to educate not only the existing but the future health force regarding early recognition and uh, management of sepsis we have been holding basic assessment and support in intensive care courses across the country since 2013 we have also uh, introduced the american thoracic society global scholar programs and many residents um are uh, utilizing these programs 
the most important is to introduce sepsis education at undergraduate level and uh, two of um, uh, very senior doctors from uh, private uh, medical colleges have undergone training and they are in the process to introduce uh, the very basic course at the undergraduate level simulation is the future of medical education and bigger institutions like arhan university have big simulation um, uh centers in in the hospital and they have introduced simulation sepsis workshops and i'm very hopeful that these uh, workshops will be adopted by other uh, teaching hospitals that has the facilities uh, to provide simulation education uh as uh, dr jerni khan said in one of his sessions yesterday that what cannot be measured cannot be tackled so sepsis research is a huge challenge for us because unless we know the burden of the disease we can validate the q sofa and sofa scores in our own population we can monitor the implementation of the guidelines and study the impact on outcomes introduce quality improving initiatives and also uh, we would like to know what happens to these patients after they leave the hospital so what is the quality of life so all uh, this needs to be uh, done uh, to so that we can sustain the implementation of the surviving sepsis campaign guidelines last but not the least is capacity building resources are needed to uh, make available laboratory facilities and microbiological testing at all levels not only in the private setup or big university government hospitals but even in smaller centers and there is need to strengthen the health system including referrals to tertiary care centers to develop critical care facilities uh, which are not very well developed right now So, in conclusion, the key to surviving sepsis with limited resources is a sustained effort to spread awareness regarding early recognition and appropriate management in all um, uh, kinds of setup, uh, from basic health units to the big teaching hospitals. Then, adapt and adopt the surviving sepsis campaign guidelines tailored to our own resources and a national action plan. has to be given by the government uh, to improve the sepsis awareness then ongoing efforts are needed to spread sepsis education and uh, we need to divert some resources towards sepsis research and data collection and procure funds to strengthen our health system which currently lack the link of critical care in, in them so thank you very much It was a pleasure being part of the second sepsis conference. Thank you very much, Madiha, um, for sharing with us your insights in resource uh, poor environments. Um, just uh, to let um, all the uh, guests know that the um, sepsis, the evidence-based uh, session on sepsis, the other session number two is. currently underway it's just started so if you want to click across to that you just actually have to push on to the next channel um for media one of the questions i received is that um is um environments like yourselves often have to overcome cultural habits and, and uh, traditional approaches to 
to illness and cultural beliefs. Is this something that is being tackled in Pakistan? It is very difficult, as I told you, that it is easier to do that in in big in teaching hospitals where uh, doctors have the proper training. But when it comes to smaller units, when the doctors have not undergone uh, structured training, it becomes really difficult, and that is the challenge that we face to spread these awareness through. Uh, to the um, to guidelines and to training workshops, but huge resources are needed to reach down to those smaller units where doctors are not well trained, and obviously they are caught up in the traditional way of uh, dealing with things. I have, look, I, I hear your almost pain, I would say, but as, as you uh, alluded to on your your penultimate and ultimate slide, I think that. Um, a lot of uh, the advances in tackling sepsis on a, on a global perspective is through awareness and education, 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 and persist um, to basically try and sway our governments to make them realize what a big problem sepsis actually is so that they actually put more resources towards this. And obviously, the WHO resolution should hopefully help towards that. And yeah. to find... Um, local resource-specific uh, solutions for our regional sepsis problems, which are obviously very different in a setting such as yours versus mine. So thank you very much. Um, just to conclude the session, I would like to uh, once again thank Abionics, uh, who sponsored this session. Um, I would also would like to encourage participants to please complete the survey. Um, surveys allow us to improve um, this, these sort of uh, educational efforts and uh, are a great guideline for the GSA to um, bring home the message of sepsis to all corners of the world. And last but not least, I would like to also thank um, the other sponsors of the uh, second WSC for making this uh, possible. Um, as I say, we are all uh, one human uh, population on this planet and it behoves uh, all of us to try and eradicate sepsis through effective education and uh, therapeutic intervention. So I'd like to draw the session to a close and thank you very much uh, all for attending. That's me over and out from Brisbane, Australia. Thank you. Thanks for listening. And thanks to everybody who contributed to making the Second World Sepsis Congress possible especially our sponsors, which you can find on the Congress website. The next session will be Session 9, Evidence-Based Treatment of Sepsis 2, next Thursday. Until then, have a great week.